Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. There's so many variables in commercial real estate. One, you can't rely on the broker's cap rate because they're often wrong. And two, you can't rely on one formula because of the variables here. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Thank you, everybody, for being here to the Best Ever webinar here. We're talking about how to pivot to non-residential commercial real estate in a recession. So your host today is Ash Patel, my friend and fellow co-host here at Best Ever. Ash has been a non-residential commercial real estate investor for over 10 years. He's purchased everything from office, retail, warehouse, mixed use, industrial, medical, and land. So he's sharing with us today the benefits of buying non-residential commercial real estate. And then we're going to jump into a live deal search at the end or middle to end with Osh. So it's going to be followed by a Q&A at the end. But what I want to say about that, just start submitting any questions you have now, and maybe we get to them throughout, or maybe we get to them at the end. So we're very flexible. We're very laid back. So just us two here today. So thanks again for being here. There will be a recording, FYI, if you're joining late or not able to join, we will have that. So with that, Osh, thanks for being here, man. And welcome. 
Yeah, Travis, thanks for that intro. Hey, best ever listeners, all the first time listeners, thank you guys for joining. I know your time is very valuable. I'm going to do my best to give you as much value for your time as I can possibly do. I may talk fast. I don't want you guys to take notes. I want you to listen. There's only going to be one slide, and then I'm going to share my screen for the live deal searching. So please just pay attention. I will email everybody my notes if you want. A matter of fact, I will email everyone my notes, and this presentation will also be made available. The whole recording will be out there. Sit back, relax, enjoy. Do not take notes. Just listen. All right. So it's going to be me talking for a little bit, a live deal searching, and then Q&A. I would imagine a lot of you come from the residential or multifamily space. So I'm going to address a lot of you based on that. And I want you to, for a minute, imagine if one of your tenants comes up to you and says, hey, do you mind if I remodel the bathroom in this apartment? Or if your residential tenants in a single family house says, hey, I went ahead and got a quarterly service contract for the HVAC system. And matter of fact, if anything breaks on that, I'll just go ahead and repair it at my cost. So this is the world that I invest in. And I want to bring you guys into my world for one hour today. What will you learn today? You're going to learn to take the blinders off. What does that mean? A lot of you, when you drive by the house that has overgrown grass, the shingles are missing, or if you drive by an apartment building that maybe has a for lease sign on it, I would imagine a lot of you just hit the brakes, turn around and okay, this could be an opportunity. This could be a deal here. At the end of today, I want you to do that for any asset class, whether it's a warehouse, a strip mall, an office building, or an apartment or a single family house. And the problem with doing that is you're going to be making a lot of U-turns. You're going to start asking your passengers to take over the control of the wheel. But I want you to take those blinders off and look at all real estate, not just residential. Again, I don't want you to take notes. We'll email this out to you. I'm going to give you a quick backstory about me and how I got to where I am today. Born and raised in Jersey, went to college in Southern Indiana, got a job in Cincinnati after school, and I was in the corporate world for 15 years. Always had a side hustle, always knew that I was going to do my own thing at some point, but every time I tried to quit my job, I would get raises or promotions or they give me an assistant and they paid me to delay my dreams. And it wasn't until many years later, my wife and I, every year we went to our CPA and we said, hey, we're both W-2 employees. What can we do to offset taxes? And the guy didn't even look up at us. He just grunted and he said, oh, if you make it, you got to pay it. And I'm thinking, come on, there's got to be a better way. I always heard real estate was a great way to offset taxes. I didn't know how the numbers worked. I didn't know how depreciation worked. Cost seg, all of that stuff was so foreign to me, but I knew that if I buy real estate, somehow magic happens and your taxes get reduced. So I went out and bought my first property. My very first property was a mixed use building in a college town, and it had a grocery store with four apartments above it. The building needed a lot of rehab. The commercial tenant in the store was already there. And it's funny, I didn't buy this just for the real estate. I bought it thinking that store lease is up in two years. I can put somebody in there and I can get additional revenue from running the store. 
So that was my mentality. Didn't really know what I was doing. So here I am, I'm getting apartments rehabbed, getting them ready for college kids to move into. And once they're rehabbed, I get the four lease signs out. And it turns out in college campuses, students will reserve their apartments a semester in advance. So I had these ready in August, ready for move-in day for college kids, but they already had their apartments picked out. So I had a whole semester of vacancy. And when I finally did rent them out, I learned what it was to be a residential landlord. Every big weekend, big football games, I'd be over there patching holes in walls, unclogging toilets, sinks, and just dealing with drama. There was one particular afternoon, I think it was a Saturday, I was out unclogging a tenant's toilet, and I look out the window on the roof of the store, there's a whole bunch of guys in HVAC uniforms, and they're replacing the rooftop units for the store. So I go downstairs, and I inquire what's going on, and I ask the store owner what's going on on the roof. He says, our AC went out, so we're replacing our entire HVAC system. I was blown away. Here, my residential tenants are destroying the apartments that I just got put together, and the commercial tenant is putting their own time and money into improving my property. It gets a little bit better that day. As I'm leaving that day, the store owner stops me, kind of runs after me and says, Ash, do you mind if we remodel the bathroom? Now I'm thinking, is this real life? So of course the answer is yes. I go home that day. At the time I had an IT consulting company that I started. I dropped everything that I was doing. I became a full-time commercial real estate investor. And that first property was $230,000, probably another $30,000 into renovations, rehab. And that's how I got started. Since that day, I've gone on to do industrial, mixed use, all kinds of retail, warehouse, flex, restaurants, medical, ground-up development, and I rarely buy fully leased properties. Like a lot of you, I'm doing value add, so I'm looking for those big home runs, and I'm going to, again, keep bringing you into my world. So why commercial? One of the reasons is there's a lot less competition. I know a lot of you guys have killed it in residential for so many years, but in today's environment, it's just becoming a lot more competitive. There's properties that constantly go into multiple offers. We're not just talking about single family homes, multiple offers on apartment buildings. A lot of times deals are off market and there's still people competing for them. There's people that are putting down hard, earnest money on day one, money that they're not going to get back. There's institutional buyers competing for the same residential and multifamily deals that all of you are competing for. We've heard Redfin, Zillow, Blackstone, a bunch of private equity companies buying up entire neighborhoods or towns of real estate. And it's hard to compete against companies that just need to park money and they can afford to take losses that we can't. Cap rates have touched the twos and threes. They're going back up now, but that never made sense, right? When you've got assets at two and three caps, it's just people chasing deals because they have to deploy capital. So a lot of you, I'm assuming are here today because it's gotten hard with multifamily. It's gotten hard with fix and flips, rehabs, residential. So again, stay with me and let's pretend we're going to start taking those blinders off and we're going to look at every asset class 
we're going to become deal junkies. Everything is a potential deal. So why is there less competition in commercial? Hey, Ash, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, man. As I get these Q&A, everybody, if you joined a little bit late, please be putting your Q&A questions in at any point. If they're relevant at the moment in the conversation, I'll go ahead and interrupt Ash and ask them. Otherwise, we'll save until the end. But you were just touching on cap rates, and we had a question just come in as you were speaking. I wanted to touch on it. Matt asks, will you be investing in multifamily when cap rates expand in the current recession and upcoming market to pick up good deals? Or are you all in with non-multifamily commercial real estate and why? Man, what a great question, Matt. So there's a two-part answer to that question. One, I have invested in multifamily for many years, but I've done it passively. I don't have a competitive advantage. I can't compete with residential, whether it's single family or multifamily, I can't compete with a lot of you people that have been doing this for years. You guys and girls have your teams built out. You've got your systems in place. I'd be starting from scratch and I have no competitive advantage. So I would rather invest in a lot of you doing great deals when multifamily comes back down and the returns are a lot higher. When I started investing in multifamily passively years ago, we were hitting 26, 28% cash on cash returns upon sale or IRR. Today, those returns have just gotten so much lower and the returns with commercial and everyone, when I say commercial, I mean non-residential commercial, the returns are just so much higher for us now. So yes, I am opportunistic. I also don't have blinders on. If I see a multifamily deal, I'll write down the number and shoot it over to somebody that's in that space. So the answer is yes, but I chase high returns. So if the stock market crashes, I'll put a bunch of money into stocks. I'm just opportunistic. Great question. Thank you for that. All right. So why is there less competition in commercial? The biggest reason is mindset. So many people think it's too hard. It's too expensive. I don't know anything about commercial. And there's too much risk. So let's address those because I would imagine a lot of you have the same barriers and it's all mindset. So too hard. Yes, there's a steeper learning curve. There's not a lot of good books written on commercial real estate. I try to find YouTube videos. There's not much out there. There's almost no masterminds on commercial real estate. When you look at multifamily, LinkedIn, my emails are flooded with multifamily boot camps. There's so many good books. Joe Fairless wrote the Bible on multifamily syndication. I can't tell you how many people that I've interviewed that literally read his 400 page book and have become successful multifamily syndicators. We don't have that for commercial. The masterminds, the conferences, there's one conference really for commercial. It's ICSC, International Council on Shopping Centers, very high level, very specific niche. So how do I learn commercial real estate if there's nothing out there to learn from? One great option, and I did a solo Beyond Multifamily podcast on this, and it's purchase a mixed-use building. I'll dive into that at a very high level. Mixed-use buildings are like the very first property that I bought. Typically, the first floor is retail, office, second, third, or however many floors are apartments. Why do I tell you to pivot into mixed use? It's one of those asset classes that nobody likes. Well, what does that mean? Commercial guys and girls, 
don't like them because there's a residential aspect to them. Residential people don't like them because the commercial scares them, the mindset, right? The fear. Well, again, let's continue to address that. Why is it? When there's a mixed use building on the market, it often sits there for so long. I'll give you a quick story. I owned a building and it was a mixed use building right next door. Another mixed use building came up for sale. We had a restaurant and I was going to buy the building next door, use the first floor as an event center. Didn't really care about the apartments, maybe make them into Airbnbs. I offered $165,000 for this property and they wanted one ninety. I didn't want this property bad enough. So I let it go. This was on the MLS for six months. I get a call from a residential investor friend of mine about a month later. And he says, Ash, I wonder if you'll help me evaluate this commercial building. So sure, tell me the address. He tells me the address and I knew the building very well. I told him everything I know about it. And I sent him my due diligence materials. And I said, are you going to buy it? He said, no, the commercial scares me too much. And I said, well, hold on. The residential scares me. So why don't we partner on this? He wanted nothing to do with it because of the commercial. But out of curiosity, I asked him, if this was just four apartments, same shell, same location, same exterior, just kind of chop off the first floor, drop the building down, what would you value this property at? And his answer was ARV would be 280 or 290. And my jaw dropped. You could buy this building for 165, 170. And I said, hey, look, knowing that, I'll probably buy it. Would love to partner on this with you. He wanted nothing to do with it. So buy the building for 150,000 and appraised at 490, I think, ARV. And again, this mixed use building sat stale for six months. Nobody wanted it. The residential people, too scared of the commercial. If this was just four units, there would have been a bidding war. It was a great location. A four unit apartment building does not stay on the market for six months. It doesn't stay on the market for six days. Everybody chases these and overbids and it's crazy. So I really implore you, if you're at all interested in commercial, even if you're not, there's huge returns in mixed use buildings and the apartments will more than pay for all of your debt. The commercial is just typically all profit. And it's a great way for you to pivot into commercial with having a safety net. Does that make sense? There's a question, Ash. Appreciate you yeah. sharing that. The question came in, are there more ways to add value in multifamily or non-multifamily commercial real estate? Great question, hands down. Commercial real estate or non-multifamily. And we will cover that in here in just a second. So too hard, again, dive into mixed use. Great segue. A lot of older cities have mixed use buildings. Too expensive. I can find you commercial buildings that cost less than the average residential home in your area. They're out there. You don't have to buy a $3 million commercial building to get started. You can find small mom and pop strip malls for a couple hundred thousand dollars all day long. So too expensive is not an excuse that we're taking today. Too much risk. That's fair, right? A lot of people think the retail apocalypse, the Amazon effect. Well, the neighborhood strip malls, when COVID happened, they blew up and we realized the importance of suburban downtowns. Think about that little strip mall 
where there's a barbershop, a nail salon, the pet groomer, the deli, the pizza place, the neighborhood watering hole, the convenience store. These are internet and recession resistant businesses. So if you don't want to chase that whole food strip mall with a TJ Maxx and a Best Buy, awesome. These smaller neighborhood strip malls often have much higher cash on cash returns. So when you start going to your neighborhood locations, get that in the back of your mind. I wonder what they're paying for rent. I wonder what this would sell for. And then start looking at commercial listings and just how a lot of you could look at a house, look at an apartment building, and probably very quickly tell me exactly what it's worth. Be able to do that with different asset classes. So when you see a deal, you know it's a deal. Um, I want to ask one question real quick yeah. that just came in, I think is also relevant. So in terms of property managers with mixed use buildings, what's your take on that? Are they easy to find? Are they expensive? How does that work? Oh, no, no, no. Hold on. Just so we're clear, we self-manage most of our properties. And with a mixed use building, you have a built-in property manager. Whoever is running that business on the first floor is going to be your best property manager, your best boots on the ground ever, because they have customers coming into their business. Again, whether it's retail, office, whatever it is, it behooves them to make sure that the sidewalks are clear of debris and snow. There's no ice dams built up. Potholes in the parking lot are taken care of. Your residential tenants that don't have a car that may not leave their house for a number of days at a time could care less that there's vines growing on the back of the building near electric lines. Your commercial tenant will let you know. And often, if it's a remote property in a different state, you could have them address it and just pay whichever contractors they use. So no, that's your built-in property manager. Great question. But in general, Travis, commercial real estate is way easier to manage. We don't need a staff. We don't need leasing people. We don't need a maintenance person for every 50 units, right? Right. A lot of these tenants take care of their own issues. Great question. So back to taking the blinders off, pivoting to higher returns. Another reason there is less competition with commercial is it's more difficult to obtain lending. With residential, multifamily, there's brokers out there. There's banks that love multifamily. There's all kinds of agency debt available for multifamily. With commercial deals, that mixed-use building that you all are going to go look for, the only people that will finance those are local lenders. Your Bank of America, Chase, they're not going to touch a mixed-use building, especially one that's 100 years old that needs rehab. Even some of your regional banks won't touch those deals. You have to find a local lender or a community bank, somebody that's within a two, three mile radius of that location and their portfolio loans. The deals that we do, the originating bank typically keeps the loan on their books for the life of the loan. They don't sell your loans like your residential mortgages, right? So for us, lending is all about relationships Whereas residential and multifamily, it's all about the best rate. You guys are okay paying a broker one or two points to get the absolute best deal out there. For us, it comes down to relationships because when we buy a vacant building, a half vacant building, or something that needs a massive amount of rehab, 
it doesn't fit the criteria for any lender. So we have to have relationships with lenders. Some of the benefits of commercial real estate. I'm going to share my screen here, Travis, if that's okay. Sure. All right. This is the only slide. And again, I put this up there because I don't want you guys writing stuff down. We'll make all of this available to you, but I want it up there just for a reference for anybody that is not driving. All right. So benefits. We deal with business owners instead of residential tenants. Why is that better? These are people that their livelihood depends on the building that you own. In the 10 plus years that I've been doing this, I've never had to evict a commercial tenant. It's almost unheard of. And when tenants are behind on rent, if they can't make it, they have their apartment rent or they have their store rent, their business rent. They're often going to pay the rent that produces revenue. So you're going to get paid before their home mortgage or their apartment rent. So tenants, they hold their business in very high regard. We have multi-year leases versus residential. You have one-year leases. Now, when a recession is on the horizon, that is a huge benefit. If you buy a strip mall or an office building or an industrial building, and there's seven years left on that lease, man, how much better do you feel that we could hit hard times in a year or two, and those hard times can last two, three, four, even five years, and you're okay. You're still getting paid. So when it comes to a recession and unshaky economic futures, having those long-term leases is incredibly important. That brings up a good point, Ash. We got a question that just came in that's relevant here. So what's your typical hold period and why? Yeah, that's a great question. When I started, I was like a lot of residential people that I talked to, buy and hold forever, live off that passive income, accumulate doors, units, whatever. But then I learned as I got into this business over the years, when you can add 80% of the value 80% of the upside to an asset, sell it, move on to the next one. So at the end of the day, the one metric that doesn't lie is your balance sheet, your net worth. Our goal is to increase that net worth as fast as we can, as high as we can. And if you do the math, the numbers speak for themselves. Holding on to a deal, trying to save up money and buy the next deal, saving up your passive income to buy the next deal, it's not the fast track to growing your net worth if you compare that to adding 80% of the value to an asset, selling it, doing that all over again. So us value add investors, that's what we're good at. Adding value, we're not good at buying and holding. We know how to add value. So why don't we add value as much as we can? So that's the answer to that question. As soon as you can extract most of the value out of an asset, sell it, buy a bigger asset or buy multiple assets. It's a great point. And short plug for the best ever roundtables. We have this discussion and I've actually made an episode on passive investor tips. I like to call it the velocity of capital and I'm a hundred percent in alignment with you. I use this example of I'm a full-time passive investor. I invest like Osh in the multifamily <clears throat> space passively, hands off and I've been in deals for years and years and years where each year our cash flow is ticking up, let's say 1%. So I'm sitting on some deals this year that are cash flowing 14, 15, 16%, which sounds amazing. 
But if you go back to the value add model that Osh is talking about, and I put in 100K and that deal sells early in two or three years, and I reinvest it in value add, two, three years later it sells, and I reinvest again, my results are so far off. It could be a two to three X example compared to just holding on forever. So great points. And of course, the older a property gets, the more capital it requires. So there's going to come the day that the roof needs replacing again, and you've got to start influxing more capital to keep it running. So didn't want to take too much of that heat, but that's a great point. Appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. And let's reiterate what Travis said again. The one number that doesn't lie is your bottom line, your net worth, your personal financial statement. The numbers that can be manipulated are number of doors, passive monthly income. Again, you can be over leveraged, get more doors, achieve your goal. But if that's not increasing your net worth, it's not accomplishing your goal. So for everybody that has the goal, I want a hundred doors by the end of this year. I want a thousand doors in five years. Go ahead, keep that goal, but please add a net worth goal to that. It's so important because that net worth needs to be moving up every year. And again, it's the one metric that never lies. So yeah, great question. Back to the benefits of commercial real estate. We talked about multi-year leases versus residential leases are one year and that in a recession, you could ride them out. In addition, when a tenant's going to leave in their lease, oftentimes they have to give you 180 days or 90 days advance notice. So you now have several months to market that space for the next tenant. And ideally, you should not have any gaps at all. As soon as one tenant leaves, the other one should be ready to move in. In your leases, places have to be rental ready. We don't do turnovers like residential people where there's a crew that comes in, paint, carpet, all that stuff, the commercial tenants will do all of that on their way out. Tenants improving your buildings, we talked about that. Tenants doing their own build-outs. I can't tell you how many times we've given people just a blank box, plywood floors, primed walls, and they've transformed them into incredible salons, churches, restaurants, and they do it on their dime. It's the most amazing thing to watch where a business owner comes in and just adds so much value to your building. Commercial tenants are much easier to manage. We touched on that a little bit with the mixed use commercial tenants, but again, you're dealing with business owners. They're going to take care of the exterior. They're going to make sure your property is presentable for their customers. When lights go out, often they take care of it. You don't even hear about it. And a lot of the leases, it can be built in where they're responsible for all of the maintenance, all of the snow removal, all of the landscaping. They're responsible for HVAC repairs. So there's varying levels of tenant and landlord responsibility with commercial real estate. We're also not bound by rent comps. And what does that mean? So back to the original question that I didn't answer at the time, Travis, can you add value easier to multifamily or commercial? And the answer is by far commercial. Let's look at multifamily. If you have a class A building and there's other class A buildings around you, let's say a one bedroom rents for $1,000 per month. What can you possibly do to increase that rent to $1,200? Maybe put washers and dryers in each unit, do the renovation. It's already class A. 
dog park, covered parking, you can only push those rents so far. With commercial property, you can take a block building with a metal roof that's vacant or maybe has a mom and pop convenience store in it. If you sign a 10-year lease to a Dollar General, you've added over a million dollars in value the day that you sign that piece of paper. So with commercial, we're buying quality of tenants. We're buying lengths of leases. I want to draw a quick parallel here for any multifamily folks tuning in, because that's what I primarily focus on. So everything you're discussing and describing to me as a parallel in multifamily is more like an opportunistic play. So to Asha's point, you have A-class, new construction, luxury, high-end. You have B-class and C-class, value-add, pre-existing. And then you have what's sometimes referred to as opportunistic. Maybe there's a property that's 400 units, but it's only half filled up because there's some major problems. So it's kind of higher risk, but higher reward. In some cases, Ash, maybe not so high risk in what you're describing. But you're coming in, you're getting creative, and you're completely turning something around with potentially a lot of equity upside instead of just trying to push those average rents from 1000 to 1200 to your point. Yes. And keep in mind, I am very, very conservative. I turn down so many other deals that other people jump on. If I turn something away, I'll often hand it off to somebody and they'll absolutely jump on it and be grateful. I'm pretty risk averse. I'm conservative. So I'm looking for those unicorn deals, but I'm not very risk tolerant. So just keep that in mind. I'm not just shooting from the hip on these deals. So back to the length of the leases and the quality of the leases. Now that dollar general, we hypothetically spoke about, if it's a fresh 10-year lease, anybody in this country would buy that deal. They don't even care where it is or what it looks like because they're buying an income stream. It's a revenue stream, right? And it's a triple net lease. If there's one or two years left on that lease, it's high risk. You're getting a lot lower sale price on that sale because if they don't renew, you're back to having the $300,000 building. So length and quality of the leases is very important. A good analogy is, Travis, if you have a high-rise apartment building and Kevin Hart moves into that building, that might increase in value a little bit because other people may want to live there. It becomes more attractive. It's the same thing with commercial real estate. Our Kevin Hart's are Starbucks, Chipotle, Dollar General. If you have a strip mall and a Starbucks comes in, everybody's going to want to be at that strip. That's very, very true. Yeah. The other way to increase value in commercial real estate is having second generation spaces. So remember those buildings where I gave them a blank slate, they built out a restaurant or a salon. If they leave a lot of that equipment, a lot of the counters, all of that stays behind. Now you've got a second generation facility to lease out. It's more turnkey. The first tenant had to envision their salon or their business in that space. The second generation tenant goes in there and sees a turnkey place And you can charge a lot more rent because of that. One thing I do want to address is when people hear commercial real estate, they immediately flock to triple net mailbox money, right? Triple net leases or net leases. A lot of your national tenants will sign those Walgreens, McDonald's. 
it's one of those things where you buy a property like that Dollar General and there's no landlord responsibilities. Tenants responsible for roof, parking lot, snow removal, signage, utilities, taxes, insurance. So everybody thinks, okay, I'm going to work up to triple net and get that mailbox money. Well, let me deflate that bubble for a second. So if you do find a triple net deal, it's going to be very, very low returns because there's no risk. And the risk is relative to the rewards. And also keep in mind, not all triple nets are equal. You may have one where the tenants take care of everything, but then there's going to be others where the landlord pays for all of the expenses and then at the end of the year gets reimbursed by the tenants or there's varying levels and brokers often will call deals triple net when they're not, where the landlord is still responsible for roof, parking lot, exterior, sometimes HVAC replacements, but tenants responsible for HVAC repairs. So there's varying levels of leases. And again, because of all this obscurity, it keeps the competition away. How many people out of all of our attendees today knew that there was a varying level of triple net leases? Again, there's no books out there. There's just not a lot of good material out there until you dive in and get after it, learn it on your own, learn it from mentors. So again, benefits of CRE, some of the ways to add a lot of value. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. It's no secret that everyone is trying to find the recession-proof investment right now. What if you could invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes of the last 25 years with one of the best teams in the U.S.? Self-storage is that asset class, and Reliant Real Estate Management is that team. Reliant Real Estate Management is the 17th largest storage operator. They have sold over $1 billion in self-storage assets and have lost no investor principal with the average project-level IRR of 33% in the last three years. Right now, you can be one of the first to invest in their next fund at ReliantFund4.com. Fund 4 is a $100 million equity fund with seven properties already identified to close before the end of 2022. If you're an accredited investor, visit ReliantFund4.com to download the investment summary and schedule a call with Reliant's experience team. That's ReliantFund4.com, R-E-L-I-A-N-T-F-U-N-D-F-O-U-R.com. Let's take a couple questions, but I do want to get into the live deal searching. Any, All right. Any uh, repetitive questions that you see? Out well, there? yeah, we got one that's really relevant to exactly what you just said. They asked, so there's so much to know about non-residential office space in Atlanta versus industrial and in Charlotte versus medical and Tampa. You can't be an expert in everything. So what do you do? Just have broker contacts everywhere. Who are the experts or do you just choose something and go with it? Start. Just start. So if you start with your mixed-use building, you might get comfortable doing additional retail. If you start with a small office building, now I know everyone's scared of office, but I got to tell you, small offices in suburban areas, especially walkable suburban downtowns, are on fire. After COVID, people realize that, especially in the summertime, I can't work from home. My spouse works from home. My kids are home from school. I've got pets running around, not a conducive environment to work from home, especially for multiple people. So those singular or small offices are very easy to rent out, especially ones that are in suburban locations. People don't want to drive to city centers anymore. Even when we go out to the bars for dinner, how often are people going downtown? 
they're going to their downtown suburbs, right? So offices close to where people live, small offices on fire. But again, same way I started, I learned things overly the hard way. I'm just not one of those people that learns easily. So I've made so many mistakes, but just going to one asset class after another, the fundamentals remain fairly similar. You dissect the leases. You try to achieve the highest NOI. You look at how long will it take to lease out a property? If it is a high rise office building, you could be sitting for years with vacancy. If it is a flex space that we talked about just before this call got started, flex space is typically a metal building where they have bay doors and a man door. It can be used anybody from plumbers, HVAC companies, car audio, window tinting, exterminators, all kinds of tradespeople, woodworking shops. They're so versatile. They're so easy to lease out. And the smaller, the better. 1,000, 1,500 to 2,500 square foot flex spaces. If you get one of them, you know what the going rate is? In your pro forma, discount that a little bit. Be conservative and know that with very little effort, you can get that leased out. So just start diving into deals. There's a site called 10X, no affiliation, but 10X, LoopNet, Crexy, get on those sites and often they'll have a due diligence vault. 10X has the most comprehensive because those are auction properties. They want the highest price at auction. So they'll include copies of leases, appraisals, historic P&Ls, rent rolls, everything. It's an easy way to practice underwriting. A lot of them will even have pro formas. Take the broker's pro forma with a grain of salt, but at least it gives you a starting point. So start underwriting deals. That neighborhood strip mall that you drive by every day on your way home. Figure out what it sold for last. Call them up, ask them what they're paying in rent, or just estimate what the going rent is. Look at neighboring for lease signs. Find out what spaces you're going for and back into a pro forma. It's free. doesn't take a lot of time. Spend 20 minutes a week, 30 minutes a week doing that. And you'll start looking at commercial assets a different way. When you drive by a strip mall, you'll start whiplashing yourself, office buildings, warehouses. I want you guys, please take the blinders off, right? Couple things real quick. Appreciate that. Great advice. Let's talk about financing. This is one of the questions. And then FYI on the Q&A, I think you can see as well, someone posted a LoopNet link. I don't know if that's how you want to start your deal search or look at some properties you've already identified. But Q&A first, is seller financing available in commercial real estate like there is in multifamily and single family? A hundred percent. The advice that I give everybody is find out what the seller is going to do with their money. If they've got a ton of money, they probably don't want to take the tax hit. If they're selling their whole portfolio, they probably don't want to get an additional tax burden. So they would be more likely to do seller financing. We had a crazy story where a lady had listed her commercial property for sale. We asked her what she was going to do with the money. And she had to close within 25 days on the commercial property. It was off market. It wasn't listed. Sorry. And she said she wanted the money to buy a house in North Carolina in Hilton Head. And we're like, okay, we can't get a commercial deal done in 25 days, but we can buy that house for you in Hilton Head and essentially hold the note until we pay off the commercial deal, until we get that transaction done. So you can get creative just like you can with residential. 
And the higher the dollar amount, the more taxes people are paying. So there's so much more opportunity for seller financing and also seller financing to commercial real estate investors is not that much of a foreign concept as it could be to a lot of residential people. Great answer. New Q&A, and then we'll move on to the deal search here. So someone's asking, and I'm going to add a little bit of context to this for the listener. When you do these deals, are you doing a JV or a joint venture with a few handful of investors? Are you syndicating deals? And if so, what does your structure look like in terms of splits or preferred returns, depreciation, anything you want to share about the GPLP side? Or are you buying individually just for yourself? All of the above. I buy individually. People that I've mentored, if they find a deal and they ask me to come in, I'll go in on it with them. I do a lot of joint ventures. So a lot of my joint ventures are residential where people buy apartment buildings and they want a capital partner or really capital partner because they have no expertise with apartments. Or if they're deals that people just want a couple partners on, we'll do that. We've done syndications. So really all of the above. The deal structure is different based on what the property is kicking off. We bought a $5 million strip mall that was such a home run. We gave our investors an 18% preferred return every year, but then it's a 70-30 split. 70 goes to us, whereas normally it would go to the LP. We have another deal where the total cash on cash for this strip mall is 15% and it's triple net, fully leased, five-year leases, and there's 3% rent increases every year. So I think on that one, it's a 9% pref, 50-50 split at the end of that. But where that deal makes a lot of sense is there's no renewals built in. It's a brand new strip mall. The builder didn't put any renewals in. So in year five, these people have established businesses. Their space was fully built out by us and the builder. And now we can charge them at or above market, which should be a huge home run, right? So that's a deal that you don't make a lot of money in five years, but at that five-year mark, it's just a lot of return. So Love it's it. deal by deal because all of our deals are so unique. And again, that's what's great about commercial real estate. A lot of the deals are very unique and it keeps the competition away because of some of the complexity. But I'm telling you, listen, if I can do it, it's not that hard. Dive into deal flow. Let's do it. Yeah. All Either right. starting with the link submitted or anything you want to start with is fine. All right. So I'm cheating a little bit here. I have a mastermind where I was doing this same example for them. And I said, somebody give me a city, any city that you live in. And one of the students yelled out, Wilmington, North Carolina, there's no good deals there. I said, okay, let's go. So what did we do? We're going to type in Wilmington, North Carolina, commercial real estate. So we're searching for deals. I don't go to LoopNet. I don't go to Craigslist. I don't go to 10X. There's too many eyes on those properties they're marketed by professional brokers. They're priced by professional brokers. One of the best ways that I've found deals, Travis, in the last 10 years is when you go to a residential website and search for commercial deals. Here's one that we have in our local market. This brokerage covers several states in the Midwest. So if we go to this residential website and they change their site, Often on residential websites, you can search by commercial deals. 
So let's see. I'm not going to waste a lot of time here, but go to residential realtors. And if they have a way to search the commercial MLS, do that because these are deals listed by residential realtors. They're often mispriced and mismarketed. So that's a great way to find deals. Back to Wilmington, North Carolina. We don't want to hit these ads because somebody's paying to get their listings out there, which means they're professionals. They're not going to be mispriced. They're not going to be mismarketed. CBRE, professional broker. We don't want them. LoopNet, sorry, there's too many eyes on those deals. CoStar, same thing. Now we're going to the non-sponsored listings. Again, we have LoopNet. We have something called MWM Real Estate. Cool. This looks like a little boutique real estate firm. We go to property search and they've got commercial and residential property. We are going to do a for sale and let's focus on retail. All right. So first thing we have $1.2 million for 6,600 square feet. Interesting. I'm assuming this is two buildings. I'm assuming you get both of them. 1.2 million occupancy should be 100% good. Let's see if they give us a cap rate. Let's read about this one. This property is in Wrightsboro. The shop has four bays, a small office, and a waiting area. It looks like there's only one building here, maybe two. Well, we're not going to dive too much into this. It's also listed retail for lease. Interesting. As you mentioned cap rate and you're kind of scrolling around there, I just want to read you off a question that came through. So with interest rates rising and looking at value add, how much spread do you like between cap rate and interest rates to make a deal work or AKA to be conservative? This person asking would like to have a, a property that cash flows as is to satisfy passive investor goals while taking advantage of value add component to capture upside later on. Do you look at the spread between interest rates and pro forma cap after you add value to determine if you're going to take down the deal? Yeah, Travis, the only way you can apply a blanket formula is if it's on triple net properties. So if we look at this dollar yeah. general right in front of us, let's assume they have 10 years left on their lease. Then yes, that spread can be a formula that you can use repetitively to find good deals. But there's so many variables in commercial real estate. One, you can't rely on the broker's cap rate because they're often wrong. And two, you can't rely on one formula because of the variables here. So let's see what we have here. Good. Dollar General, it's occupied. Obviously, a single tenant, 10,000 square feet. All right. So this is at a six cap. I'm going to assume there's a six years left on the lease. And they have four five-year options. Okay. So if you buy this for $1.4 million, you're going to hope that they continue to renew their options because if it is 9,000 square feet, so $100 a square feet is $900,000, $150 per square foot would be about $1.4 million. But if this was vacant, it would probably sell for $50 to $60 per square foot. So this is a big risk. Yes, for six years, you get guaranteed payments. But if they choose not to renew or upon renewal, if they say we'll renew, but we want a discount in rent, they can certainly do that. So for me, this is too big of a risk. I would not do this deal. 
question on that that came through. So with a tenant like a Dollar General or a stable long-term tenant, so what's a typical annual renewal increase? And what are your thoughts on inflation being 8 9% and how that factors into a long-term lease with lower than that amount for a lease renewal? Every yeah, year? great question again. So right now we're building in 6% renewals annually, and we might get some pushback might drop it down to 5 or 4%. Historically, it's been a 3% annual increase, but with inflation and we have long-term leases. So when you have long-term leases with built-in renewals, you have to have those increases because of inflation. Now, if you want to cut your tenants a break, and if that 6% increase ends up meaning they're paying above market, I would cut that back a little bit. You don't have to enforce that. Right. So let's keep going. Here's another Dollar General. Same square footage, but $400,000 cheaper. My guess is they have less years remaining. We have no details. Ah, very busy location, upgraded exterior. They don't give us a cap rate. They don't give us anything. That's so the 400K discount. That's why. Yes. So You don't know what you're buying. This is what numbers <laughs> of years remaining on a national tenant lease does, right? Let's keep going. We have a restaurant for $2.2 million. Looks like a very specific niche. We'll avoid that. A 5,000 square foot strip center. Okay. Let's see how much occupancy they have. 100%. And it is 5,000 square feet for how much money? 1.25 million. So half the size of the dollar general, but about the same price as the one with six years remaining. Why is that? Okay, so no details, right? Now let's think about this for a second. We don't know the occupancy of this because this broker gave us nothing. Most people, when they're browsing for listings, next, this listing sucks. There's no details here. There's 12 photos. Let's see what they have. Perfect. A for lease listing. That's on the broker's photo. Horrible marketing. Now we know this property is mismarketed. Shame on the broker, but call this number. This could be a deal. So we have some vacancy. When you call that number, let's see how receptive they are. If they don't call you back for three or four days, if they don't call you back at all, you know that one of the reasons it might be vacant is because nobody's paying attention. They're asleep at the wheel. And you know that maybe with a little bit of marketing, a little bit of attention, you might be able to fill this spot. So these are the properties that you want to call on because a lot of people will just bypass this 5,000 square feet for 1.25 million. Someone's asking us, is there an underwriting template that you'd recommend to get started? Where can I get a copy if so? Yes. If you guys are okay with receiving an email from me with the notes, I'll include the template as well. And I'll give everybody my personal email address. It's Ash, A-S-H, B as in boy, Patel, Ash, B, Patel at gmail.com. Happy to hear from any of you guys. If there's things that you want me to dive into more on these Beyond Multifamily podcasts, please let me know. So here's the deal. And again, fair disclosure, I found this one earlier, but let's dive into this one. 34,000 square feet. And I know nothing about Wilmington, North Carolina. Couldn't point it out on a map if you told me. I could point out North Carolina. But $1.6 million, 2.4 acres, 
these guys list a 10.12% cap rate. So we have way more square footage than anything that we've seen previously on this site and in line with the other prices. So let's dive in and figure this one out. 11 photos. So this looks like it's an entire block. Again, why would a broker do this? Put a for rent sign on their listing. Again, this is telling us it's mismarketed a little bit. A Napa Auto Parts. Awesome. National tenant, right? So hopefully Napa Corporation signed this lease. So it is a corporate guaranteed lease. And we have a quick and chicken. We've got a fast tax. We've got some mom and pop businesses, a single family house. Okay. So the single family house is right here, tucked behind the strip mall. Weird. So this is that flex space that we were talking about earlier. You have this retail up front, a single family house. This is your on-site property manager right there. And I'm going to call this flex space or storage space. This is weird. And it looks like there's a demarcation line here. So this was probably built afterwards. Awesome. Rent this out separately. Again, how many landscapers and tradespeople do we know that would love to get a spot like this? And look, right here, there's some trucks here. My guess is some kind of contractor is occupying the space. That's great. Having a semi-trailer here gives you an idea of the size of this parking lot. All right, so we have not much information at all on this, but we know that there's a Napa there. So how do we dive into this deal? So let's do this. We want to see how well marketed this deal is. If you Google the address, I'm hoping that this property will not come up anywhere and that this boutique real estate firm listed it and they're the only ones that are marketing it. But when we do a search for that address, if MapQuest comes up and Waze comes up, it's not marketed. LoopNet, let's see what they have. Uh-oh, retail property for sale. Is this on LoopNet? 1.6 million. Ah, it is marketed. But again, the same Lack of information. Okay, home, life, care. That's good. Napa. And there's that house again. So let's do this. Let's dive in a little bit deeper. A lot of parallels here, Ash, to my wife and I just bought a couple cars. When you think about marketing in a similar way, you know, if you go to a dealership, you've got the markup, you've got lack of discounts. You're not these days going to be able to really hardly negotiate anything. So it's like you're looking for the vehicle that's the mom and pop owner that's listed in one place, like maybe on Craigslist or something outside of the city. And then you're going to go there and try to negotiate and be a little opportunistic and creative with the deal. So same parallels apply, I think, in the real estate space. I agree. Here's our house, right? $80,000 house. It's a three bedroom, one bath, 1500 square feet. Let's see if it's sold. This is on Zillow. Sales. Where are sales? Some of my residential people help me out. Where does Zillow? Sometimes go? it's under the property tax area, the price history. You're somewhere here close. Okay. So look, there's a listing for rent. Okay. $850 for rent. So, hey, that's beyond the 1% rule. So I know a little bit of residential. So <laughs> look, let's agree. This is valued at $80,000, right? Cool. But now here's why I like Zillow. 
it very quickly gives you parcel lines. So this is that Napa Auto Parts. And that Napa looks like it's parceled separately. So if we go to Crexy and type in Napa Auto Parts. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what kind of cap rates they're selling for. National company. Here we go. Oh, on the market for 100 days. 1.1 million. And there's 7.2 years remaining on the lease. 6% cap rate. Let's keep going. Here's one that looks a little bit older. And look, I think the footprint that we have in our listing is bigger than this. And it's at $1.6 million. So they're asking $1.6 million for that whole block that we just saw. And here's a Napa with how many years left? It's at a 5.6% cap rate. Corporate lease. Oh, come on. How many years left? I don't think they tell you. Let's keep going just a little bit more. So this Napa is for $1.6 million. Let's find another older crappy Napa. Here we go. 1.1 million. They have three locations. I can't imagine they're selling them all for that much. Let's skip this one. All right. Oh, look at this. This is a weird Napa. Look at this. Our plaza comes up. What are they doing here? Interesting. Retail center anchored by Napa Auto Parts. Do they give any more information? 34,000 cars per day, which is good. Okay. Let's dive into a Google Street View. As we're pulling this up, everybody attending, appreciate you hanging out here. We're a little past the hour. Appreciate you still being online. So if you want to go ahead and dive into any Q&A, go ahead and submit those. And Ash, maybe we'll do like a quick fire round. Just okay. keep short, simple, yeah. and brief right Guys, after I'm you're sorry. Listen, driving listen. this. I get excited when I see this kind of stuff. Okay. So Google Street View, they took a picture June of 2022. The center does not look bad. It does not look neglected. Where is my, okay, so there's some vacancy. No, maybe not. Everything looks fully leased here. Oh, here we go. For rent. Okay. An end cap for rent. Weird. Let's look at a historic view, right? Let's go back to 2018. And we have some of the same tenants. The chicken place. Okay. Napa is still there. Okay. So it looks like Napa had expanded at some point. And here we go. Okay, cool. This used to be East Carolina Computers. And Napa had this dated facade here between 2017 and 2018 and 2022. Napa freshened up their front and they took over more space. Look, this is great. If you're going to parcel off that Napa, you can say they've already expanded their footprint. They've redone their facade. And that shows a commitment to that space. So somebody dive into this deal offline, man. I like this. $1.6 million for a city block. And you could probably sell that Napa, even if you sell it for seven, 800 pennies on the dollar. You're now only into the center for $800,000. That's Pretty commercial cool. real estate, guys. Awesome. Let's do a quick fire round. Appreciate that. And start with thoughts on medical real estate is the first question. Medical is on fire. I did a solo Beyond Multifamily podcast on this, Travis. Medical is on fire because when do you ever see a doctor's office have a going out of business sale? They don't close. They trade at such low cap rates. And one of the ways to find deals in medical 
is in your own areas, look for those regional medical groups, the orthopedic group, the podiatry group, the regional optometrist group. They're not a national tenant, but you know, if they have six, seven, eight, nine, ten locations and they have a corporate signed lease, they're not going out of business. And the beauty is if a medical tenant decides not to renew their lease, you can get a replacement medical tenant just like that. Imagine a dentist leaving. All the plumbing is there. The electric is there for the chairs. If they leave, there's so many customers used to coming to this location once every six months. You can get another dentist in just like that. If a veterinarian leaves, you can easily get another veterinarian in that location. Same thing, primary care. You can easily backfill with a similar specialty because people are used to going to that location for whatever care they require. Love it. Thoughts on warehouse? Warehouse is interesting. If it's a large warehouse, the closer you can get to an airport, the closer you can get to an interstate, the closer you can get to intersecting interstates where two interstates cross. As long as there's a workforce, they're on fire. If you can get warehouse close to city centers, that last mile delivery. So when you order something for same day delivery, it's not coming from Memphis or Louisville. It's coming from a local warehouse, or at least that local warehouse will serve as a distribution depot. So on fire, warehouse is on fire. Next question. Osh, this is awesome. What are some of your most important factors in underwriting and what are your deal breakers? For example, traffic counts, mom and pop versus national tenant, lease length, location, exterior condition, et cetera. Yeah. The one metric that you really can't overcome, crime, all that stuff, traffic counts, you can overcome. The one metric you can't is a declining population. That's often a deal breaker for us. So Anything else, just know. It's like buying a Class C apartment building. You know there's going to be some issues. You've got broken windows. You're going to have crime in your parking lot. You might have to hire security. Things you can overcome. Even if it's a rural mom-and-pop strip mall, you know that going into it. So the returns better be higher. Some of my best returns have been those rural properties that nobody else is chasing. The coastal buyers, the REITs, the institutional money, they're not chasing stuff out in middle of the suburbs or out in rural areas. So don't be afraid to chase any of that declining population. Sorry. It's the one deal breaker. Yep. Totally agree. That's a huge one. Not a lot of people talk about. Do you ever put in your contracts that you can market the property before you close on it to help fill a vacancy and or lower your risk? Yes. Whoever asked this question, I love you. It's one of the greatest ways to test drive a deal And we're honest about that. And if we don't put it in the contract, we'll at least verbalize that. Look, if you're buying a property out of state, get it under contract and put out, not ads, posts on Facebook's Craigslist. If you do an ad, you're pushing. We want just to be out there. We want people to come to us because that gives us a true idea of demand. And then every town has a local Facebook page. And I'm talking about not the official page, the unofficial one where people go there to gossip. They talk about the crime, the schools, the politics, the neighborhood bullies. Get on those sites and say, I'm looking at buying this building. What are your thoughts? Or, hey, do you know anybody that can help me lease a vacancy? Do you have any friends that are business owners looking for office space or that have an interest in leasing this retail spot for me? Man, that's where things go to get done. And we push our brokers to do that. 
often it's above them or it's beneath them. We have to supplement it. So if we give a listing to a broker, we'll still get on Facebook, Craigslist, and we'll do some guerrilla marketing on our own. So I love that. Yes, test drive properties for free. You'll get your earnest money back. Be honest with whoever it is that you're dealing with and let them know what you're doing. Great so answer. More follow-up. If somebody's hesitant about that, just say, look, when this deal's done, if I don't end up buying it, I will turn over all of the contacts to you. Great point. How and when is the optimal time to bring up seller financing so brokers and sellers can discuss that? Man, you guys are killing me with these questions. They're incredible. Great, great question. So the first thing you want to do is establish yourself. You don't want to lead with the offer seller financing. You want to say, hey, look, I love this property. Tell me about the tenants. Ask some questions that show you're a bit seasoned. And if you're not, say I'm working with a team or we're looking to take down similar types of properties. Ask them about, is there fire suppression? Number of parking spots? How old is the roof? How old are the HVAC units? You go in there, act as if you know what you're doing to establish some credibility. And then say, are you flexible on price? All the normal things. Get a lot of their time, their due diligence materials, and then find out as much as you can. Stalk this person on social media. Look at the history of the property. Find out everything you can. And then find out if there's a pain point that you can address. What are you going to do with the money? Are you going to buy something else? Are you going to 1031 it? And the more you know, the more ammunition you have for that seller financing question. If somebody leads with that, if they shoot too early, I think you'll blow the deal. Great point. Last two questions here. What markets are you focusing on in 2022 and or 2023? I love these questions. I am afraid of the markets that have had meteoric rises, not buying in Scottsdale, not buying in Miami. I love suburbs. We're doing a lot in suburban Atlanta, Indiana suburbs. There's an exodus of people leaving Chicago, similar to what's going on with Californians moving to Texas. Chicagoans are moving to Indiana to get out of the political climate, the high tax rates, the lack of services. So look where no one else is looking. Don't be afraid to look in suburbs that are not on anyone's radar. Look for deals. We don't buy markets. We don't buy areas. We buy deals. So look for that deal, the high cash on cash return. Love that. Last question from David. When does your next mastermind open up? I will send you guys an email. We only take 20 people at a time and it's four months long. It's intensive and you have to be an established real estate person. You, you've got to be experienced. Otherwise, it's overwhelming. It's not for you. I want to make sure we don't waste your time and money. So I'll email you guys info on that. Appreciate that. And Ash, this has been amazing, man. You're such a wealth of knowledge. This is such a great educational series. Everybody, thanks for hanging out till the end. We almost retained a full retention rate all the way through, even though we're over an hour and 15 into this. So again, if you join later, want a, a repeat of this, we're going to have the recording. Ash is going to reach out with the details that he discussed. So just want to thank everybody once again. This was how to pivot to non-residential commercial real estate during a recession. I'm your moderator, Travis Watts. Your host has been Ash Patel. Have a best ever week, everyone. Any closing thoughts, Ash? Yeah, Travis, you are awesome. Thanks for doing this with me. And to all of my best ever listeners, guys, thank you. 
I wish we can go another six hours. I would keep doing this, but I'm so grateful for the time that you guys spent with me today. Hope you got a lot of value out of it. And remember, please take the blinders off, right? Start looking at deals that are outside of your comfort zone. Push yourself. There's different times coming. There's different asset classes that might become very appealing, that might have great returns. So get rid of those blinders. Start looking at everything. Guys, thank you. Thanks, everyone.